Welcome to the Corrymeela podcast, conversations about politics, history, art and theology. In this podcast, I'm in conversation with a rich lineup of guests considering Irishness and Britishness in this year that marks the centenary of partition and is the first year of Brexit. For this week's episode, I'm in conversation with historian and theologian Dr. Johnston McMaster. He talks about the major issues facing Ireland, the UK, Europe and the world, including an issue that recent events close to home have brought very much to the surface. The partition of any country is traumatic. Uh, and the reunification, if you like to use that word, of any country becomes equally traumatic. And he tells me how the double impact of COVID and Brexit have the potential to wreak massive change. What is the future for Europe? What is the future for the United Kingdom? What is the future for Ireland? Nothing is guaranteed, and I think nothing is inevitable. Hello, my name is Padraig Tuma, and you're listening to the Corrymeela podcast. With me today is Dr. Johnston McMaster, a historian and theologian. Johnston is the author of the Ethical and Shared Remembering program at the Junction in Derry and adjunct assistant professor at the Irish School of Ecumenics. His book, Partition, What Did It Do For Us?, was published in 2020. Johnston, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Porig. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, thank you for asking me and inviting me to be part of this, this podcast. Just as we start, where are you talking to us from, Johnston? I'm in uh, YouthLink at the moment, YouthLink in, in West Belfast um, on, on Springfield Road, the Interchurch Youth Service Agency. I still, I'm still I used to work here, um, wow. not, not in this building, but, but elsewhere, early days of YouthLink, the first five years of YouthLink, but I'm still involved in informal ways with the organisation. So I've, I've, I've borrowed a room this morning. Very delighted you're with us. We'll jump right in. Johnson, you've been involved for many years with the Irish School of Ecumenics, um, having grown up and trained for ministry within the Methodist tradition. What influenced your interest in ecumenism? I think maybe one of the things that was, was helpful that encouraged it, my first appointment after after theological training in an Edgehill College in Belfast was to West Cork. And I'd never been any further south than Dublin before then. Um, but suddenly I, I find myself in, in the month of July in 1971 in Dunmanway in West Cork. And that was a small uh, Methodist community, very much a minority community. Uh, the Protestant community in total, very much a minority. When I arrived there, I was inundated by people calling at the house saying, welcome, you'll be involved in this, you'll be involved in that, you'll be involved in the other. And I realized that uh, I was going to have to be, or was expected to be much more than merely a Methodist minister or a minister or, or somebody who was pastoring just Methodist people. Um, and, and there were early days in this kind of thing. But that's where I, 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 cut my teeth in a very early experience of, of ecumenism and collaboration and working together and trying to understand together people of different traditions. As a Cork man myself, I'm thrilled to hear that um, it was Cork that converted you to ecumenism. Uh, there's a there's a, a bigger story, I think, in that one as well, uh, because it was it was the West Cork experience, which in many ways was formative, not just in, in 
my introduction to and involvement with practical ecumenism. But it was in West Cork and around that area that I discovered Irish history. It, it not having been part of my education in Northern Ireland. That's so interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, it was not part of any curriculum that I was following. I, I was doing English history. I was doing some American history, but I, I, I did not do any. I was not taught any Irish history. And suddenly in West Cork, I'm driving along, uh, getting to know the country in a new, a new area, and I'm coming across memorials, sites of ambush, um, discovering that there are headstones in, in certain graveyards. And, and there's a history and there's a story here of the 1920s, 1919, 1920, 1921. And you had never come across that before? I'd never come across that. And 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 suddenly also you're realising that that here I'm in the Bandon Valley. Yeah. And the Bandon Valley is where in 1920 or thereabouts there are 13, 14 people shot dead in, in, in a couple of nights mm. from the Protestant community. Um, but I, I was not aware of this. And then I started to realise, well, I, I haven't been, I'm not aware of what was going on at the same time in Belfast. I've since discovered that the, the killing and violence in Belfast was even much worse. I became angry, actually. Mm. This had not been touched in, in my formal education and in school. It had not been touched either in any of my theological education. Uh, and I, 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 I became angry because I, I thought I'm supposed to be here uh, as a pastor, as someone who's got to make sense of God, and I have no context in which to, to do that. From that point, from West Cork, I, I was putting together history, politics and theology. Mm. Um, in your most recent book on partition, Johnston, you wrote, um, all history is interpretation, and there are yeah. few historians who believe in the objectivist illusion. With all our presuppositions and biases, there is no absolute objectivity. And it occurs to me that that, as a, a point of view into history, it must be quite complex to hold that point of view into your own discipline of theology as well. I can't imagine it makes you friends to be to have to hold so many truths together. Yeah, but but here again, I think has been the value of 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 approaching theology from, if you like, an ecumenical perspective, um, because that has opened up one to traditions other than one's own, uh, and it has opened one up, I think, in the course of, of 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 a lifetime reflection and trying to think through things, it opens you up to to theologies that are well beyond. Um, any any kind of Irish experience as well. Yeah, you had to engage with, with with South American theology, with African theology, with Asian theology, uh, and 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 also the journey brought me to a point as well where it was it was engaging with theologies that were were beyond Christian theology. I would say that all of that has been for me an enriching experience that that has. Um, that has meant, you're quite right, holding together all sorts of, of tensions at times. But tensions can be held together, I think, in creative ways, I hope. Yeah. And, 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 and in, in creative tension, um, you are living with not a static, you, you can't then live with a static kind of theology. The, the, the whole vision of God or God talk or God language or however we want to describe it is always developing, always changing. 
always deepening, always a work in progress. Um, and and I, I like to think of that in terms of a journey and a journey that I don't see having any end. <laughs> um, I, I don't mean to be literal about that no. in terms of any afterlife, but, but as long as there's breath in one's body, I think uh, one, one needs to be questioning, pushing the boundaries, expanding the horizons. And, and for me, that is done again in terms of, of, of history, politics and theology and trying to hold those together. One of the things that's so clear in looking at your whole life of work, um, Johnston, is that, you know, you are very well accoladed in the academy and you have lectured um, in many places, both as a as an employee of various um, academic institutions, as well as visiting lecturer in many places around the world. And at the same time, you're as easily to be found giving a series of talks in a retreat centre or a parish hall. And so it isn't only in terms of uh, ecumenism where you're holding different things together. It's also in terms of lecturing and the dissemination of information. For you, you seem to curate that um, as a public historian and a public theologian and not only in the academy. And neither seems to suffer. It's not like you kind of uh, find the, the ladybird version of something. You know, you're, you're presenting material with great sophistication in places where you think folks here mightn't have, you know, they might have too many other priorities in order to go to lectures or do another degree, but you bring it out. Why, why is that so important to you? Well, I, I, I think that has been important to me as I like to think that that, that um, at least one of the roles I, I, I try to have is, is that of being an educator. Uh, and 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 an educator, I think, is is someone who prov who enables others to open up to space and new space, and explore whatever it may be. Um, and it's been important for me to not to hold that solely in the academy. But that has got to go to the community. That has got to go into the community, be part of the community. And I think sometimes there are huge tensions in that. Uh, and the tensions, there are tensions in two directions, I think. There is a tension between the academy and the community. They don't always relate well. And there is a tension also between that kind of community education, community theological education, if you like, and the ecclesiastical institutional approach and systems. And those two, it seems to me at times those two theologies don't always meet. Yeah. Um, but but they need there needs again to be an engagement and and so it i felt it important as someone who tries to do education to 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 bring the insights that perhaps are to be found in the academy uh, and to to enable people to find an accessible way into those and understand them and wrestle with the critical questions that are being raised there. In turn, I feel then that the community has this huge contribution to make to the academy because it's where the rubber hits the road is in the community. Uh, and, and, and that is where if, if, if theology and ethics is going to are going to make any sense, They've got to make sense at that level. And at that level, also, there are the insights that need to challenge the academy. And the unheard stories as well. The unheard stories, exactly. One of the great things about being uh, at local level, the parish hall, as you say, or, 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 or some such centre, is 
are the narratives that you become exposed to yourself. The, the narratives that you hear being told, the experiences of people, the struggles of people with big ultimate questions. Sometimes the academy can be in the bubble that doesn't quite connect with, with that level. So they need each other, I think. Yeah. And also, I think the other thing I would say in that is it's about holding together the local and the global as well. Yeah, as you were mentioning. Um, the local's in the global, the global's in the local, if you like. Well, I'd like to talk to you about partition. Um, in your book, there's a story about being in Oslo with some friends from East Germany uh, who knew that by the time that they, you know, when the Berlin Wall was coming down, that they were going to be returning home to a different country because of everything that the falling of the Berlin Wall meant. Could you tell us yeah. about that experience and the impact it had on you? It was a, a Methodist Youth Council. I was in youth work in those days. And uh, once a year, a Methodist Youth Council would meet in different parts of Europe to sort out a European-wide kind of youth work strategy, etc. And we were in Oslo, and some of us, um, I think three East German um, youth workers and myself, were staying in Lillestrom, which is not terribly far out of Oslo, uh, a half-hour train journey, I think. But on the night in which, at midnight, the two Germanys were to be reunited, they, they said to me, look, do you mind staying for a while and getting a later train back to Lillestrom? There were three other East Germans staying in Oslo itself. We'd like to spend the midnight hour with, with our, our, our three friends and, and, and mark this occasion. And there was a little television in the, in the, in the room. And um, we, 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 we approached midnight uh, watching the events in, in, in Berlin and, and, um, the midnight hour was going to mark the, the reunification, if you like, of the, the two Germanys. Um, and the, the, the bishop who was there, the East German Methodist bishop who was there, um, that was a hugely moving moment. Two or three minutes to midnight, he sat down and he played, as it were, for the last time, the old East German anthem. Hmm. And then came midnight, the, the, the speech, brief speech by, by the, 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 the chancellor, of, of Germany and uh, Cole, I think, Helmut Cole. And, and, and then, then the bishop played the new, the new German anthem, as it were. There wasn't a dry eye in the room. But what struck me uh, very much about that was, I, I couldn't help, and I think I said this in the, in the introduction to the book, I, I couldn't help but reflect on my own experience. How would, they, they, were, they were going back to a country that no longer existed. They were going back to a new country. Um, and, and however difficult and hard it had been living in the old East German system, um, they, they were still sad about something. Uh, and, and, and it was a, a traumatic moment, I think, in many ways, a hugely moving emotional moment. And, and I wondered at that point, well, what would it be like if I'd left Belfast last Thursday and I go back this Tuesday? and um, something's changed in Ireland, how would I feel? Um, and I think one realised in that experience that, that the partition of any country is traumatic. Uh, and the reunification, if you like to use that word, of any country becomes equally traumatic. They're, 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 they're big experiences that 
challenge and, and shatter probably um, people's sense of identity, who they are. Yeah. Partition starts something that reunification doesn't end. So in 2021, you know, we're reaching the centenary of partition of Ireland, which resulted in two separate jurisdictions existing on the island. You've published a book, Partition, What Did It Do For Us? Um, and in the book, you explore the journey to partition and you consider its impact. And I know this is a tortuous question for a historian, but could you, for anybody who's listening, who might not be familiar with that period in Irish and British history, could you talk us through some of the events that you think are important for folks to know that led to partition? I, I think in, the, in, the, in that chapter in the book, I think I start a, f a fair bit back. Um, and I think that the, I think you've got to try and understand the longer view of, of, of history. The road to partition, I think, was pretty torturous and it was long. This all, it didn't happen in 1920, 1921. Um, we, we're back to, to plantation for example. Uh, we're back to the story of different communities of people arriving in Ireland and becoming part of the, 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 the narrative of Ireland. And, and there is a sectarian dynamic that's there from the 16th century and the reformations, um, which, which never took hold in Ireland. Protestants were and remain a minority community in the whole of Ireland. In some senses, you, you've got to nearly say the Protestant Reformations were no great success in Ireland, if you look at it from the perspective of Protestant Reformations. Um, so we have this sectarian tension, and and it's 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 a combination of of religion is in there, politics are in there. Um, you you have you have the experience that goes through the 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 dismantling of penal laws. First of all, the establishing of penal laws, the dismantling of penal laws. You, you come into the 19th century where there is the whole campaign to sort out the land issue, where land had belonged to, 85% of land in Ireland had belonged to a 10% community, if you like, um, and more even. And, and, and all of that leads eventually to the home rule uh, crisis of 1886, 1893, and then again in 1912. So there is this torturous, painful, increasingly violent buildup, uh, particularly through that decade, uh, the, the decade that we're marking with centenaries at the moment from 1912 to 1922. Ireland was heading for a pretty bloody confrontation and civil war, I think, around 1914 when, when World War I broke out. And, and and Irish men in particular of, of 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 nationalist or unionist persuasion were going off together at that stage and even dying together on on on, on various fronts in World War One. When you come to the end of it, uh, and you have Churchill's famous words about redrawing the map of Europe, and and when the deluge had settled, uh, we, we we still got the grey dreary steeples of Fermanagh and Tyrone. The Irish problem's still there. And then the torturous two or three years where there were interesting possibilities. You mean, I mean, was it inevitable that it was going to end up in partition? Or could there have been other possibilities? What are some of those other possibilities that you're familiar well, with? Well, there was, there, were, there was a possibility, for example, uh, that had been certainly live from about 1914, and was being seriously 
looked at by the Prime Minister, Asquith, which had started further back with Lloyd George, who had talked about home rule all round. And that would have been what what then the person who was very much involved in drawing together the the, um, the, the, the Government of Ireland Act that was passed on the 23rd of December 1920 that actually partitioned Ireland. These people were federalists and they were looking at the possibility of, of federal solutions, a parliament in Scotland, a parliament in Wales, a parliament in Ireland, a parliament in, in England. Um, but for some reason or other, it was Lloyd George himself who put the brakes on that in about 1918, 1919. And it, that, that possibility began to fade from the, from, 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 from the realms of possibility. And then we cannot simplify the process that led to partition. But, but then in the end, and I think there were mistakes in here, I think one of the mistakes, and it may not be um, popular to say, but I think the abstentionism of Sinn Féin at that time was a mistake that left the Irish question solely in the hands of the Ulster Unionists in the British Parliament. And, and, and there was no, no other voice in there. Um, and, and, and so the, the Unionists, were, I think, were able to, to, to have quite a say and influence on, on what was a conservative dominated government at the time um, that, that, that eventually panned out as, as this partition of Ireland, this Government of Ireland Act. And that's where the book is actually focused. I think it, 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 it doesn't focus on the centenary of the birth of Northern Ireland and it doesn't focus on the centenary of the founding and birth of what became the Republic of Ireland in 1922. It focuses on that Government of Ireland Act of 1920 because that was the act that actually partitioned Ireland and it seems to me it also partitioned the province of Ulster and as I tried to say in the book, it, it also partitioned Irish Unionists and partitioned Irish nationalists. Now, I think there's a lot of tragedy in all of that. Corrymeela is Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organisation. Working with thousands of people a year, we support groups to deepen inclusion, peace and belonging. These remotely recorded podcasts come from our kitchen table to yours because we can't be together in the same room talking about these important topics in this important year. So if you want to take the conversation further, we've got some discussion and reflection questions for you and a full transcription too. You can find those on our website corrymila.org forward slash podcast or it's also linked in our show notes. You're listening to the Corrymila podcast and I'm Padraigo Tuma. With me today is historian and theologian Dr. Johnston McMaster. Um, Johnston I would like to talk to you about the the kind of role and power of churches within the context of Irish partition. 
Um, you know, we've heard of Northern Ireland being described as a Protestant state for a Protestant people, which is less to do really, of course, with what people think theologically and more to do with that, you know, Protestant communities might have looked across to Britain in terms of a sense of identity, whereas Catholic communities would um, consider themselves Irish. Um, and I'm sure you'll want to bring subtlety into what I'm putting forward there fairly baldly. What what role and what power did the churches play within the context of identity and even partition um, as it happened? And one of the good things about this decade of centenaries, if we, we, we can refer to that, is that you look at the role of churches 100 years ago and then you look at the role and place of churches now mm. and you begin to see how much has changed enormously and, and that churches are in a very, very different place 100 years on. You go back then, and I think in Ireland, they are pretty powerful institutions, whether they're Protestant or Catholic. They, 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 are, they are very much identified with their respective political positions, for example. The Catholic Church is fully supportive of, of home rule. Home rule, nothing less, they were saying, will meet the needs of the Irish people. Now, we can maybe wonder what did they mean, who did they mean by the Irish people? Um, but then you have the Protestant churches who are all totally aligned with the opposition to home rule. And, 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 and the, the story of, of 1912 and, and Ulster Covenant and all the rest of it, coming to partition in 1921, uh, and and you 1920-21 and and you have the churches still pretty much lined up and still pretty powerful in terms of their their political influence and 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 their role and they 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 take on even greater roles it seems to me uh, after that in some ways the, the the catholic church in in the republic becomes very much um the powerful institution it had been becoming that through the, the latter half of the 19th century. Um, but it's very much involved in legislation. And in, in when you look at events like the International Eucharistic Congress of 1932, and you see the role of, of the politicians in that, and then you move into this new creation of Northern Ireland also, and, and you find that, that the Protestant churches um, have, have in fact settled in some way very much so for a kind of Protestant state and what Craig described as a, a Protestant state for Protestant people. When he said that, he was merely echoing de Valera, who talked about a Catholic state for Catholic people. So I think part of the problem of partition was that not only had we two states born in violence, but we had the birth of two confessional states. And, and, and that confessionalism was both bad for politics and bad for faith and bad for theology and bad for church. The interesting thing was that when partition came about, you have, for example, um, the role of the Church of Ireland bishops is interesting. And, and, and some research has been done around that. And you have, you have the Church of Ireland bishops, in a sense, all being unionists, but Irish unionists. And when it comes to partition, uh, you have the Southern bishops opposed to partition, as Southern Irish Unionists were, and you have the Northern Irish bishops um, supporting the partition of Ireland. And yet at that same point, you have not just 
Church of Ireland bishops saying, but you've also got the church leaders of, of, of all of the churches really saying and being quite adamant about it. Bishop Orr of Chewham, for example, um, in his diocesan synod, uh, talks about the partition of Ireland. And whatever the partition of Ireland does, there is no way that we are going to settle for any kind of partition within the church. And so the churches all retained all Ireland identities. They may have had political positions where they were either support, supportive of or against the partition of Ireland, but nothing was going to partition the churches. When it comes to partition, you know, obviously there's always going to be great subtleties about what led to it, why it was there, why six counties rather than three counties, who decided that, the Border Commission, all of those things are going to be debated back and forth um, and different people will bring forth both data as well as analysis. But where do you see the border now? Like, do you see an inevitability of two independent two separate jurisdictions in Ireland continuing? Do you see that the only option is either uh, for reunification or not? Do you see other interesting things happening? What, where do you see um, what's happening now and what possibilities for the future might be that might be perhaps less divisive than just a yes or no? Um, it's very difficult, I think, to separate out the whole COVID issue and the Brexit issue, both have come together uh, and, and, and each has, in, in their own way, exposed a lot of things that are dysfunctional, not working, wrong, the inequalities that we've had exposed, uh, the, the, the dysfunctionality of, of, of government systems that has been exposed, the, 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 the flaw and weakness, I think, within the concept of, of a United Kingdom, which has been exposed as being anything but united. Um, and I think also, I think we've reached a point uh, and that there are the new challenges with Brexit. It, it, it might have been a great deal worse had we ended up with a hard border. We haven't, but we seem to have ended up with what some people are calling this border down the middle of the REC. But it, 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 it has thrown, not just in terms of Northern Ireland, it has thrown everything up in the air, I think. Uh, what's going on in the United States? Uh, what's going on as power and wealth moves from West to East? And a future that might well be Asia and not Europe. And therefore, what is the role of Europe within this geopolitical uh, new and emerging narrative or narrative. And the last 10 years have been such a change. I'm looking at a quote from you from a booklet you published in 2011 where you were describing Europe as post-nationalist and writing that the kind of nationalisms we saw at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, have been overtaken. And this is a quote from you, overtaken by European integration. The 21st century on the island is about a different and more ethical kind of politics characterized by a liberal participative democracy and a local European and global interdependence. How do those words seem now, 10 years later? Yeah, quite. Thank you for quoting those back at me. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> st stuff, stuff comes back to bite us all the time. But um, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I think, think it's some... so interesting. Like what you were saying then made a lot yeah. of sense. Um, I'm curious how you sit with the 
those words? I think I think some of that still holds. I think there has been a big swing, uh, call it populism or whatever we call it, but I think there has been a big swing towards um, towards extreme, and 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 we have had voices raised um, in Europe, in America, and elsewhere that that uh, we have entered. Also, I think since those words were were written i think we have entered we've moved more also towards a democratic deficit on our planet now it, it this is where i think everything is is up for grabs at the moment and we may well be in some big moment of transition some big hinge moment in in history um I still think democracy is the best form of governance that we have until we invent something else. And I don't think it's beyond the ingenuity of, of human beings to come up with another form of governance that may be better. But that's the best I think we have. And I think it's worth trying to strengthen that and deepen it, particularly in terms of deliberative and, and participative democracy. And there's something there that has radical roots, I think, back, for example, in Irish Presbyterianism. Um, which we've all kind of lost, I think, in a process as well. Now, this is where I would be prepared to say uh, at this point, I think, and it's been a growing conviction for some years, uh, that the concept of the United Kingdom and the concept of United Ireland are both obsolete. That they were not in 1916, we're not in 1921 anymore, um, we're not in 1701 or wherever when a union first came about between Scotland and England. We're, we're in a situation where, where maybe we're looking at the diminution of the United States, the diminution of the United Kingdom, even the diminution of the European Union. The big unions... Um, I think have been crashing. The Soviet Union disappeared, um, and and there's something that that may be shifting and and changing. So when that is put into global context, and I think there was nothing more stark and amazing than 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 watching uh, Ursula von der Leyen and and other European officials sign off on the agreement between the United Kingdom and Europe. And then the next day, we had we had Merkel and Macron and van der Leyen and the Chinese president signing a huge big trade agreement between Europe and China. Now, good or bad, that's a shifting world we're in. And I think there is a question here, what is the future for Europe. What is the future for the United Kingdom? What is the future for Ireland? Nothing is guaranteed. And I think nothing is inevitable. But I think we're at a point where we need to engage ourselves in global context in trying to wrestle and struggle and imagine what a future will be. Because I don't think it's going to be the same. What it is I'm not quite sure, um, but I, I think we might well find if the United Kingdom, for example, wants to survive, then it may well we may well be back to hundred years ago to looking again at federalism, a written constitution, and a bill of rights. Ireland, if it is to 
come together, let's put it that way. And I think we should drop language like a united Ireland or a reunited Ireland. We, we need to talk, if we're going to talk about an, a shared Ireland or a new Ireland, and that's very different from what anybody I think will have envisaged or, or, or could have dreamt of. But that too might be a federal arrangement. There might be a, a parliament in Dublin and a parliament in Belfast. But but a shared island, one one country. And what would you say is the role of faith communities in all of this, Johnston, um, as you look at the role north and south? Okay, if I go back 100 years again, um, the faith communities had conflated their faith loyalties with national loyalties. Um, they, they had identified and over-identified their faith commitments with political commitments. Um, I think the breakdown of church state, and this is the value, and I think it's the positive value of the secular, that it is the separation of church and state. And I think we have seen that happen in Ireland. And that puts the churches in a different place. And I'm not quite sure they've realized it yet, what has actually been happening and what it means. It, it means that I think for the faith community now, there is no religious commitment that can be identified with, with a political commitment. I think what the faith communities bring to all of this is, is to is to give an ethical perspective. An ethical perspective of what, what would ethical politics look like? What do ethical economics look like? What do ethical uh, environmental concerns look like? And do you think the churches have the authority to do that? You know, I don't mean from governments, but in terms of their own public witness, do you think the churches... I, are... I, I, I have questions about that. Um, I, I have questions about that because I think what has happened is, I think in the last lot of years, as we've seen the breakdown between church and state, religion and politics, I think we've witnessed the churches um, generally, I'm talking generally now, going into flight. And I, I, I think they, we have come through the, the three decades and more of violence, but I think we too easily got to the end of that and thought, the violence is over, back to business as usual. There was no radical shift in theologies. There was no major working out a theology, for example, of social reconciliation. There was no kind of working through a whole radical public theology, a new public theology that would apply ethics to the big social public questions of our time and, 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 and generation. Um, and I think, therefore, the problem for the churches is that they are theologically not fit for social reconciliation or social peace or, 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 or common good. They don't have the theology worked through because there's not been sufficient reflection. There's not been a process of deconstruction and then a process of reconstruction. There's not been a shift of hermeneutic that allows theology, sacred text, foundational documents to be interpreted 
and read from a socio-political, um, ethical perspective. And until we start to move much more along those lines, I'm, I'm, I don't see. I think there will continue to be a diminution of of the institutional forms of religion here. And I think it's interesting. Uh, and and I had this discussion yesterday with with a number of people who were who were saying from different areas and different parts of Ireland, from Dundalk to Ballymena, young people aren't interested in this stuff at all. Mm. They're, they're, they, they don't have any religious identity and do not wish to have a religious identity. Now, I think we need to ask why. Um, and, and there may be some obvious answers to that. I can hear what you're saying. There is a, a kind of a classic example of lots of the ways that you speak about the future by inviting people to have an ethical examination of the past. It isn't just laying out facts of history and deciding who's to blame and who's not, but that there is a kind of a self-reflective and community and church and political and identity-based reflective approach toward the past in order to be able to find a new way to live together with those tensions into a future where the, the tensions might look very different. Um, why, why is an ethical reflection on the past so necessary in order to open up the present and perhaps a future after that? I think what we tried to spell out in, 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 in the Ethical Shared Remembering program was, was we, we borrowed from, um, from, from Richard Kearney. The, the, the Irish philosopher teaching in, in Boston, who had a template that he had developed around, I first came across it um, in, in, in a book and piece he'd written on interreligious dialogue. And, and it, it, struck, it struck me then that this, this template of narrative hospitality, narrative plurality, narrative um, complexity, was was something that we that could be applied to the exploration and the reflection on 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 our history and on our our, our decade of events that crucial decade of 1912-1922 in Ireland and that that was an ethical approach because here was here was a way of opening up space to hear a multiplicity of narratives to recognize that go back to something you quoted from me earlier that all history is interpretation and there will always be multiple interpretations but we need to hear each other and have enough generosity in hospitality terms if you like to hear the diversity of perspectives and stories and histories and also to realize that 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 is hugely complex complex in the sense that it doesn't stand still that somebody discovers a bunch of letters up in an attic that has been sitting up there for the last century, maybe. And it opens up a whole new perspective and a whole new angle and the history changes. And it's not about the, the kind of thing that you sometimes hear, ah, revisionism, revisionism, rewriting history. History is always being rewritten because it's inevitable that is rewritten because the narrative and the information and the insights keep changing. No one has the whole story of Ireland. 
in everything that you're proposing, Johnston, one of the things that I think is fundamental that would hold all that together is the capacity for leaders across, you know, religious and political identities on the island of Ireland, as well as between Ireland and Britain, to have exchanges of thought and expansions of the mind and communicating with each other in a way where people are open to curiosity and surprise and shared learning. Do you think that we have adequate leadership for that, both in religion and in politics? I think you're absolutely right that that, that is what we need. And, 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 and we, we um, for example, we Brexit, I think, has shown us in the last four years that, that with a lot of the politicians in Britain, certainly of government, there was the most appalling level of knowledge of, of Irish history as if Irish history was not also British history. And I don't know what exposure, for example, young people in an educational system in these two islands would have to, to, to those complex narratives of Irish-British history. But I think we do need to engage. The problem, I think, at the moment is that, that on one side of the pond, there is an un, there has been a lot of nostalgia around the whole Brexit thing. There has been a kind of longing for empire again uh, and, and a, an inability to acknowledge that empire has gone, faded, the sun has set. But also the possibility that that offers to begin to critically look at a history of, and histories of the past and to look at it together. How do the Scots and the English need to talk to each other? about 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 histories how do we in ireland and britain east west need to talk to each other about histories how do we need to help young people um be engaged in that kind of thing the, the churches themselves when you have situations where in one denomination there has been a cutting off of the relationship uh, with 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 a sister church on the other the mother church in fact on the other side of the pond um, you have a closing down of history. You have a closing down of engagement. You have a closing down of discourse. And, and we're not going to be open in that kind of thing to having our narrow perspectives, and they are therefore narrow perspectives, challenged and widened and broadened. And, and also, to, and I think key, key to all of that engagement is a recognition of, of complexity. And one of the things I think that dialogue requires is the capacity to recognise that some people will see that dialogue will be morally suspect. Because I think, to be blunt about it, some folks are really moved toward dialogue and other people will say, well, if you dialogue with them, well, therefore you are no kind of co-identifier with us. You see that that's the... Uh, that's informing some of the anxiety that there's a taint um, uh, imagined, really, if somebody's seen to be engaging, like a Presbyterian from Ireland and a Presbyterian from Scotland, for instance, formally in their public roles, would probably wonder who's watching them, were they to be seen to be engaging well. There is a great deal of angst about. There is a great deal of fear around. I think something, for example, like fundamentalism, whether it be political fundamentalism or religious fundamentalism, not just Christian, but others as well, is largely driven by fear and angst. 
and it's 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 the fear and angst that comes from the sense that a world is collapsing, that old certitudes are really disappearing, they're not there anymore, and therefore you will get this kind of opposition. I think, which we've got to try and understand, um, and that begins to sound almost like a condescending um, reflection on it. But but what are the, what are the root causes of the angst? What creates the fear that may lurk in all of us that, that will stop us from, from engaging? And the feeling of our identities are tied up in small little boxes that you feel then that if you do begin to broaden out and open up in the slightest way to another set of narratives, you, you begin to lose that identity, you begin to lose your faith. I've had it put to me frequently. How can you be ecumenical? You're compromising the purity of your tradition. When it comes to interreligious dialogue uh, and, and talking together and engaging in dialogue with, with Muslims and Jews and Hindus and so forth, um, there is there is a tremendous angst about over that one. And how can you do that? You're, you're letting the side down. You're, 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 you're compromise the whole, the whole faith. The pu- there's a purity issue, I think, lies behind a lot of this as well. And what is the purity that we're trying to maintain? And that may be deeply personal in terms of what we think our identity is. And it raises questions again. Well, what, what is our ultimately? How do we talk about identity? Are we unionists? Are we nationalists? Are we Methodists? Are we Catholic? Are we Presbyterians? Or are we primarily human? And and that common shared humanity is a much larger identity, I think, that that has also can also be perceived in terms of beyond our very localized, maybe parochial kind of perspective and identity and we need i think in today's world and where we're heading and where we're going we we are global citizens what as we finish up i'm curious about what sustains you in hope um about uh, the practicing of uh politic and ecumenism that is based on this common shared humanity i, I think the wider larger perspectives are there and and in terms of of, of of faith community, I think there is this growing awareness of a public theology that goes way beyond our, our confessionalisms, that, that is rooted in the human as well as in the sacred, if you like, and the two are not different. And it's an ecumenism that recovers the sense of the meaning of that word in its original language, for example, the whole inhabited earth but it's even broader than that now because I think this is where we need to talk about the whole community of life. And within that perspective of a whole community of life, our humanness is tied up also with, I think, the world of nature and and the animal and the inanimate world that we, we live in. We're not apart from this. We're not above this. We're all part of a huge partnership 
on which I think we need to, to find ways of expressing it and embodying it so that our identities can be larger, so that we can be engaged in a process of, of the healing of a world that is not just the healing of a human community, but the healing of a whole community of life. And, and I see in, in the context and the contacts and the, the opportunities I, I've had and, and still have, I, I draw a great deal of hope from, from a lot of the dialogue and, and action that is taking place. There are moves, there are moves into that larger way of, of looking at things. I, I, see, I see the hopefulness in young people who, no, no, okay, not all, but, but many, I think, who do not want to identify with the old narrow uh, identity markers, be they political or be they religious but are open to a, a more human story. Johnson McMaster, um, public theologian and public historian, thank you so much for coming on the Corrie podcast. Thank you, Porik. Thank you. Our guest this week, Reverend Dr. Johnson McMaster, is a historian and theologian. His latest book is Partition, What Did It Do For Us? And it's a publication from The Junction. That's available from The Junction's website. We've got links in our show notes. Don't forget to listen right to the very end for when Johnston answers some of our very short story questions. Thanks for listening to the Corrie Mueller podcast. I'm Padraig Tuma, and I'll be back next week with another episode. The Corrie Mueller podcast comes to you with generous support from our funders. Henry Luce Foundation, the Fund for Reconciliation from the Irish Government, the Community Relations Council, Northern Ireland, and our regular monthly and annual donors were part of the Corrie Network of Friends. The Corrie podcast is a Fond Fond production, thanks to researcher and producer Emily Rawling. This podcast was mixed by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios. people that I would be in a lockdown bubble or would enjoy being in a lockdown bubble with, I would say Colin Bannis, Daniel O'Connell and John Hume. <laughs> Those three people were big people in their, their imaginations and their outlook on things. They were great global figures, uh, Europeans, speaking truth to power, looking for emancipation, be it religious, be it slavery, be it political. I'd love a conversation and be in a bubble with those guys. Mm -hmm. Johnston, thank you so much. <laughs>